Stormy Simon is the new High Times CEO, and you know, she might just be the right person at the right time. Simon helped build Overstock.com into a $2 billion company as she rose through the ranks based on performance, starting as an entry-level account executive. Her story is compelling, and now she's on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called cannabis sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Hi everyone, welcome to another special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young on location here in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's right, the adult entertainment capital of the world. And it's actually party central here because MJ BizCon, the largest cannabis business convention is here this week in Las Vegas. And we, as Pro Cannabis Media, are very happy to be sponsors of the Women in Cannabis Conference also in Las Vegas, Nevada. Joining me here on the set is Stormy Simon. Her story is so compelling. I said, you have to sit down with me, please. And you, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for letting me sit down with you. Stormy, you're, I don't know where to begin with you. Whether Utah <laughs> in 17 or, I mean, I don't even know how <laughs> to begin this interview other than to say I so respect the female who doesn't have a choice when it comes to, um, first of all, childbearing, and also child raising. That's right. And it's one of the things <laughs> that I've always marveled at, single women who have to raise their own children, play the role of a breadwinner, play the role of father, play the role of the whole nine yards. Yeah. So I bow down to you. Thank you so much, I deserve that. Yes, you do, <laughs> yes you do. Can you give us just a quick uh, overview of your story a little bit? Sure. Well, uh, it's a long one. I know it is. I'm getting up there. I know you are. That's, what, so, that's, what, that's my life. You start like it's six months old. Or you want to start about 16. <laughs> 16. 16. Okay. Just single mom, um, 17 years old. and found Utah. In Utah. Yep. Was in the great state of Utah. And found myself, you know, in the situation of I've got a baby, I'm graduating high school, and what am I gonna do next? And the truth is, you figure it out. So I appreciate all those things that you said because all those things are true. Right, was, because you have no choice. You have no choice. So at 21, I'm divorced with two children, and you really have to succeed. You know, not having food for the kids wasn't an option, not making it wasn't an option, and so that's how you get through it. And you talked a little bit about the relationship you had with your mother. I know a few times you were afraid she was going to kill you, but mothers don't do that. They nurture and love unconditionally. What about that relationship that you had with your mom? Oh, my mom 
my mom nurtured and loved and she would kill me. You know, my mom had a very tough way about her and she spoke tough and everyone would say, I think your mom's mad and she wasn't. It was the way that she spoke. Always clear. I always knew where she was coming from even if she was mad and I think as a result, you know, all of us kids are the same way. Um, much to her detriment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, my mom was great. She taught me to believe in myself and be strong and she told me every day that I was smart. And beautiful? No, she told me I was smart. Okay, good for you. A lot. Sorry. My mom would, um, yeah, my mom would close, you know, we would only have X amount of time where we would be allowed to get ready or sit in front of the mirror and get ready. And gotcha. she'd say, you're not going to sit there all day. This is not what you're going to do. And so uh, she was, she always told us that we were really smart and could do anything that we wanted. Follow your dreams. Yeah, just be you, you was really it. Just be you, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, Let's move on to Overstock, because okay. this is where you really, you know, got it together yeah. and showed those male pigs in your office exactly <laughs> who you're messing with, right? Yeah, no, I don't think they were pigs. No, I they think, weren't, no. I know, but I'm, I throw that out there just because I get embarrassed by my gender sometimes. You know, I get it. I have two white sons, mm -hmm. and they're grown-ups, yeah. and they are navigating in a world where, you know, we've got a lot of karmic things that we have to mend. And, you know, just the way that we grew up means is a male-dominated, more hierarchical, more yeah. hierarchy where, yeah. you know, you look to that man on top, and it always is, whether it's the president or the CEO, you know, we were, that was the way we viewed the world. And it was a male-dominated yes. world in the CEO chair and at the head of government and, and all that. And, Things are changing now. They really are changing. And I think for the better, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, and I appreciate you being a guy that went through it with no, us. No, you no, know, no. real men need to tell men how to act rather than explain to them, this is not how you have to act anymore. It's a new world. We have to change behaviors. Ab absolutely. But, and I think that that's happening. You know, I know with my sons, they aren't... How old are they now? They are 33 and 30. Cool. And I know that they are—they don't have um, any dominating characteristics over females. They are attracted to strong women. They have, you know, they look to the woman to lead. Maybe almost, but that's that's a great thing. They see them as their equal. They—they right. they can't, you know, they wouldn't build a company with no women. They wouldn't build a team with no women. Um, that's just the way they are. So I don't have to teach them anything. They're going to teach everybody else, you know, it, what, how we can do this together right. without seeing, you know, color or gender as, you know, monumental moments. These right. are moments that we need to seamlessly accept. Right. And, and to embrace differences, whether it be a, a male and a female or a religious difference or a skin color difference. Well, we're not so different after all. We're all one We're not so different after all. Right. If, if folks want to focus on, um, you know, who you have sex with or where you go to church or those types of things in order to build a relationship, that's one thing. And then that makes it their problem. But if we just focus on, do we all want world peace? Oh, we do. And that's what I'd rather focus on is like that one commonality that might be good, you know, and that is, that's a good thing, you yeah. know, and if we can do that much. Yeah. You know, so, we're not so different. So my dad was known as the nicest guy in the world, and I live up, try to live up to that role model every day. 
and I find good in all people, and I develop my relationship around whatever that is. And of course, I was a sportscaster in another life, and I had some tremendous opportunities to meet some of the coolest people in the world and have amazing experiences. But now I really left that behind because I didn't feel fulfilled as a human. I wanted to go out and change the world. I wanted to meet people who were making a difference in others' lives. And I've always been in my soul a teacher and a coach. But I want to go back now a little bit to uh, your experience at Overstock. And I want to go back to the, the luggage story because I find it, it was great. It's not the first time you told that story either because- Yes, it, it is. Is it really? That is the first time I have publicly told that story. Yes. <laughs> so we have it, I tell you what, we have it already on tape. Here's uh, Stormy's story about her experience at Overstock.com. Every day, day in and day out, these guys were going here and going lost, and it's like, hey, we got some luggage for you. And they would pace, they'd pace in front of these cubicles. All they do is sell the luggage. So I thought, I'm not going to touch that luggage. I'm just going to sell everything else because we would buy 5,000 vacuums. We didn't have the traffic to sell to consumers. Put 2,500 online, book the other 2,500. So one day, this guy named Gary from Colorado calls me up and he's like, do you have any luggage? It's like, yeah, I have a bunch of luggage. I've got some clients in Japan, they need a lot of luggage. I have $1.2 million worth of luggage. He goes, I have $1.2 million. So it's like, oh my gosh, I just sold that luggage. I barely got out of it every day in the luggage. So, so I walk into this office, and this is a story I never shared. This took me three years to start doing some of this. No, it's funny. So I go into this office, and I have my PO, John Kitts, St. John, I'm going to have to use real names because we're not good. He was this awkward manager, great guy, best salesman ever. And then they made him a manager. So there's a lesson for you there. Um, so John, I go in and I'm like, I just sold the luggage. He's like, that doesn't make sense. Well, I did, I just sold the luggage, I've got a video. Story, and there's this other guy in the room named Mike. Um, Ivan's from Columbia. English was a second language, which is important later in the story. So John goes story. I'm going to have to turn this over to Ivan. Ivan's going to take the deal and close it for you. And I said, close it for me? It's the PO. The deal's closed. What do you mean he's going to make it? Well, I think it's best if Ivan called Gary. I was like, for what purpose? Then, and this is true, I swear to you. Then, the guy goes, well... You know, there's such a thing as called the glass ceiling. And I'm like, what? Because it's just a moment in your life, in your career, where you're just going to have to pass it off to the man. The guy, I didn't say the man, but the guy. I said, what do you mean? Because I did know what the glass ceiling was. Of course I heard it. I just, I started questioning myself of if I really knew what it was because of how he was speaking about it. I was thinking, there's no way this guy would actually talk about this today. But the year's 2002, very different environment. I actually, so he tells me, he goes on, okay, so I say, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know what the last thing is. He says, oh, he's such a good manager, he's going to explain it in detail, like for five minutes. Well, there's this moment, he goes like, imagine you and all your friends, all your girlfriends, these little serious girlfriends working, um, looking up, and you can see the men, you can see them through the ceiling. I know, it's it's unbelievable. You see them through the ceiling, but you can't go there. You'll never get there, because that's just how it works. So I was like, oh, 
Okay. Yeah. And so I then, English is the second language, it's like, yes, mm-hmm, yep, he's agreeing with John, he's right there with him. It's Friday night, I go home. Saturday, I come back, because I have to close the deal, right? And the CEO is there. And I say, Patrick, I'm really concerned about this commission. I think of that mindset back in that day, too. My first thought, my first conversation wasn't, hey, this dude just talked to me about the glass ceiling in detail. It was, it's going to happen with my commission, because that was my concern. You know, I think I grew up in a way, in an era, where I almost participated in Me Too, because I didn't stand up for it. So that was my concern, was am I going to get this commission? We're talking, and I said, well, it all came through something to do with the glass ceiling, and he told me all this. And of course, the guy's like, I don't believe you. Because how could you? It's unbelievable. And I said, well, you should double check, because you're going to find out it's true. I then, to his credit, went to the library that night, because you still went to the library a while ago, and got books about the glass ceiling. And so he called the CEO and said, I think something really crazy happened in the office. You know, like we had this conversation. So to his credit, he did make it right. Um, after that, John wasn't fired. He stayed on for a bit. We did some counseling. <laughs> Seriously, we had to go to counseling again. Um, and what I started doing was kicking John's ass every day the minute I picked up that phone. I so yeah, I kicked John's ass. I sold more stuff than I ever dreamed in my life. And that job that I hated became a mission to outperform till that guy didn't have a ceiling, floor, wall, sidewalk, ground, nothing. He couldn't stand on nothing. Because I made sure every day when I went in, I looked at the training program and thought, I could do better than that. And then I did. So then I think, huh, I wonder if I tried this, if it would work. And then it did. And then by that time, uh, I had just done a really good job, sold a lot of stuff, and I became the boss. And I was managing 30 people, and I built that department to $25 million within 18 months. So thank you, John. What did we learn from that experience about behaviors and the hierarchy? Okay. First of all, I just told that story to a group of women. Yeah. That I wasn't like, I think I'm blushing. I have this really thing with vulnerability. I think it's funny because it's okay. It's the truth. Right. What did I learn about um, hierarchy? Hierarchy. Yeah. People of authority. Well, I I hope, and I don't know if you show the whole thing or what, how it comes out, but I believe I said something about it just was the way it was, which was how did I think about it the same I'd always thought about it. It was the same. It wasn't like... But you had to overcome their resistance to you and what you did. Yes, entire, in, in, in its entirety. Right. But the, it was just the way it was. Like... It wasn't surprising that that position would come in to me and say, we're going to take this from you. It was almost, you know, I didn't even know to, that's why I say my participation in the Me Too movement, I didn't know to. Stand up and say something. Because you didn't. Right. Because it wasn't done. Well, you didn't. Right. It was the way that it happened. It wasn't a right or wrong. Mm -hmm. You didn't stand up. Right. That's a different perspective. 
You know, it's interesting. Um, we're about 20 years apart. I'm doing quick math here. Um, I grew up in the protest era in the 60s and 70s, and we grew up standing up yes. and protesting everything because back it. then it was bad. Yeah. Okay? And here we are 50 years later. I'm not quite sure how far we've actually We evolved. hashtag it. Yeah, we hashtag it now. Yes, it's All a right. new protest. There you go. That's right. There's a protest. Um, but I just wonder now, um, the examples that you've set, you're embracing the Me Too movement. And if you could talk to, if, instead of a, a whole bunch of uh, rooms like you had upstairs of um, what I consider to be age-appropriate women, young women in their teens, having to go through what you do, what some of the advice you might give to them? Well, my hope is that they, they're managing it themselves. Mm -hmm. And some of these teens that I have met are. Mm -hmm. Some of the young women, you know, in their 20s are. Scares me, and especially with my sons, how far we're able to take that. And I would never, um, I, I would never think that a woman would make a claim that wasn't true. These are monumental claims. And I just don't buy that. I would not turn my life upside down for something that wasn't true. So that's, that's first, you know. Right. Of course that's that. what's happening. Yep. And we tell true stories. So it kind of fits with what our mission is here yeah. at Pro Cannabis Media. Um, Let's, let's move ahead a little bit. Let's turn up the clock about 10 years. Where are we going to be, do you think, as a nation? Are we going to see federal decriminalization? Are we going to see federal legalization? There's becoming more and more acceptance, and the stigma is getting beat up against, if anything, and coming down. How much we've made progress in the last couple of years, how quickly can we get to where the new normal is everybody just accepts it like everything else? Yeah, well, I fear that. <clears throat> I fear us accepting it just like everything else. Why is that? It's an adult use product used Absolutely, yeah. right, it, and it should be. But everything else is still under these regulations and laws that perhaps we should be questioning at this time because we have this plant mm -hmm that is ours, because we're people. Right. And it's the plan of the people, as every plant, right, well, yeah, is. Absolutely. But <clears throat> for some reason with this plant, it's been banned, it's been used as a tool to suppress races. Yes. Um, it's been, people have lost their lives, prison systems, which are profitable in this country, by the way, which is a sickening thing to dissect when you think of a prison system. One of the, people that I've interviewed over the last few months is Steve D'Angelo, who has the Last Sorry. Prisoner Project, who's trying to expunge and release anybody, anybody who's been convicted of a cannabis crime. Uh, you know, he's the one who drove the reform movement in California, one of them. He, we won't take credit for it. He was one yeah. of them. Uh, that being said, now he wants to get any prisoner who has been convicted of a cannabis crime out of jail. When are we going to learn that punishment perhaps isn't what works and we need more reform of our prisoners? What do you think of that? I think that that's to my point of having this accepted like every other thing. Um, punishment with this plant in particular and much on the uh, war on drugs far exceeds the crime. Like, and we're not talking about the cartels and the people who really there are bloodshed. We're right. talking about 
Kids on street corners, exactly. And and being targeted because they were African-American or Latino or whatever they were targeted by the police because they knew it would be an easy bust, you know, that kind of a thing. Absolutely, and history is written. These are facts that are written, you know, if you go back, which I made it a mission of mine upon entering this industry, is to understand what had happened to this plant. And it's, it's horrible. It is horrible. It's horrible, but it's written. And so the ways that it happened and the words that we say when, no, when we say that the prisons <clears throat> are filled with African Americans, it's not because they're bad people. Right. It, there's a reason why it is, and it's a calculated reason. And even though maybe today it's a habit or we're taught to, whatever those reasons are, it started at one point. And it kind of started with the plant. A lot of it did, and it's tragic. But the point is, you know, there's there's absolutely no reason for some of the punishment control that we have. Now, do I think we need to be good citizens? Absolutely. Are there laws? Yes. In Singapore, if you spit on the ground, you could be caned. It's something like that. It's pretty extreme. I would, I, right. Extremism However, is good anywhere. Right. When you might, when you measure you know, by whatever the report is, of whether Singapore is happy as a country, they rank in the top five. Why would that be? Because they know exactly what they have to do and what the they're The boundaries doing. are in place yeah. for them. Like a parent, you always set harsh boundaries in the beginning because it's easier to ease up. Yes. And I think the same thing's actually happening with cannabis regulations in the new states. Like Massachusetts, we've only had uh, adult use cannabis recreational availability for a year. Right. Uh, and it, the voters, by the way, did it in 2016, and it took them to 2019, 2018 to get it launched. And they did it. And they did it, and it's done. Um, and it is a new normal, and we are making progress. But I do see the same thing you do. Someday, I do think we will be going after those laws and regulations and changing them perhaps more in 10 years than they are now. And of course, we'll also have a little bit different um, representation in our governments because there'll be a little, we're going to be turning over <coughs> a lot of people. That's exactly right. When you said, what was it, in 10 years? Yeah. In 10 years, people like my sons will be in office. Right. In 10 years, we won't be, you know, we won't have to fight it because the children we raised right. will be doing it. That's and great. that's a beautiful 10 years. That's a great. And you have been a beautiful story to share with our listeners and our viewers. Thank you. And it's a bit of pleasure to meet you. And thank you for joining the Women in Cannabis Conference here thank you. in Las Vegas. That is Stormy Simon. Once again, remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly for Stormy, everybody here, Annie Epley, and Stacy Thompson, my videographer, Dan French, producer of the day, Elizabeth Dameron. I'm Jimmy Young. Thanks for listening and watching In the Weeds. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next.
Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. We are Pro Cannabis Media.